Welcome to DexGuru Talk Show. DexGuru is your DeFi trading terminal. Charting, on-chain analytics. Trading, the most effective order routing with ZeroX API. At DexGuru Talk Show, we talk about people and projects in DeFi, Web3, and crypto. My name is Roman, and I am the host. We are conducting a series of interviews with people who build the future of decentralized finance. We are all human beings, at least we like to think so. We believe that people follow people when they make trading and decisions. Therefore, we focus on the person, not current news. And today, we want to focus on our incredible guest, Clayton, community lead at UMA Protocol. Without further ado, let's begin. And uh, first of all, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Excited to have you yeah, here. My pleasure. Thanks. For starters, I'd like Thanks to ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and give a bit of a background about yourself. Sure. So uh, my name is Clayton. I'm the community lead over at UMA Protocol, UMA Protocol, and uh, grew up in Colorado, studied economics, did a bunch of digital nomading up until I discovered uh, kind of the crypto community and some of the fun things that were going on generally in 2017 and uh, stuck around through the bear market. And so I had lots of uh, pretty airdrops waiting for me when uh, this DeFi season came around, which was exciting. And I joined UMA um, almost two years ago. I think we're looking at about a year and eight at this point. And yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty good overview to get us started. What attracted you to this industry? Well, I think a bit of greed and FOMO attracted me to begin with. Um, I'd heard about Bitcoin and just sort of stayed away from it for no special reason until a friend was going to start to buy some right when it crossed 10K. And uh, I just didn't want him to get rich if I wasn't going to as well. You know, it didn't matter to me if strangers were, but I didn't want a friend doing it in front of me. So uh, what did I do? I went to a bank and handed them cash and it was deposited to a Thai and they uh, gave me some Bitcoin. And um, then I started to learn. So it was after that I learned how it works and how, how you know, how they combine the SHA-256 algorithm and hash hash hashing and how the mining whole system worked and I was just pretty blown away by the by the mechanism design of it all by the incentive design to to secure to secure bitcoin and it was kind of from there that I was just realized there was something going on I wanted to be a part of it and uh started to get a lot deeper into um what it all meant and then after 2017 sort of crash 2018 I was able to successfully lose a bunch of money, I became a little bit disillusioned, or at least it wasn't like I was nasty about it. I just stopped being so excited, and I felt uh, I felt regret and shame for having lost money. Um, so I'm going along doing my own keeping tabs on stuff a little bit until I f- uh, found out about DAI, MakerDAO. And that it was really MakerDAO that kind of reinvigorated my, uh, my hope for crypto. I basically thought it was a... Uh, decentralized or you know i basically thought crypto was too volatile to be useful but once i learned about basically building a stable coin collateralized by volatile assets uh i got really excited and so that's what kind of got me onto the DeFi path well before DeFi became a household name so we can say it was your aha moment in terms of DeFi. yep precisely what was DeFi like when you started compared to now what changed in sentiment sure so um, during that time, during the bear market, 
I started as part of my role at uh, a startup called Mosendo. I started this group called DeFi Nation with uh, the co-founders of Mosendo. And that was, uh, it was a group of nerds. It was the kind of people that, that build during a bull market, or sorry, during a bear market. So it's the kind of people who nerd out about this stuff. They aren't being guaranteed uh, huge sums of money. Um, you know, it's the builders, the people that stick around regardless of the season. And it was very enjoyable. So we had long conversations about like what it would take to tokenize real world assets, for example. And so came to really understand the difference between a legal contract and a smart contract. And um, having that around that time was the time that Compound came out and DAI went from single collateral DAI to multi-collateral DAI. Compound came up with the C token, which was just mind blowing to me at the time. The fact that you could have these you could lend people money, but then your IOU t- tickets or tokens for that le- for that uh, position, that deposit, could actually be tradable in its own right. Uh, really blew my mind about the composability possibilities of DeFi, and so it was really about some of the sort of primitive uh, DeFi primitive assets that was really enjoyable and exciting, and quite a bit different than today, you know. Um, but that's typical run antics right like there's been all these crazy different directions that uh that DeFi has gone off into and DeFi is almost an afterthought in some ways you know the the DeFi protocols uh, a lot of them are down 80 percent from their all-time highs um and uh so yeah it's just it's different and interesting. um that's not a criticism nor a worry i'm very confident that what we're building in DeFi is uh is here to stay you know the market capricious market sentiments don't uh dictate my mood about DeFi, that's for sure. So it was basically just market correction. Uh, or market distraction or uh, lack of fundamental. Um, like, yeah, I don't know. Many, many, many things. I, I actually try to avoid uh, worrying too much about the market, uh, the market's interests because I think there's like a combination of product market fit discovery and just excitement for unregulated gambling that we all like to do, apparently become revealed to me that that's what we like to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can you please explain me like I'm five, maybe ten, your product at a high level? What is it, what it does? Sure. So if I was talking to my tenure about UMA protocol, I would first start out by explaining that blockchains are basically just data records, they're pieces of information that are very hard to edit and have to have a very specific way to edit them. And that's like why they're powerful. It's very it's very hard to make changes to these blockchains, and um, that's why we can trust them. That's why we use them. And then I would explain that what an oracle does is it's a way to make little changes to these records um, that update those records about the real world. So whether it's the price of, of Ether or whether it's the success of a SpaceX rocket launch, oracles make little edits to these blockchains. And so they need to be similarly secure as the systems are that power the blockchains to begin with, because if someone can edit the blockchain um, willy-nilly, they could affect the outcome of a market that would uh, be worth millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so UMA protocol is one such solution to this uh, to this need that blockchains have to be useful, which is putting real-world data on chain. And then I would go on to further get into the fact that it is an optimistic oracle, which means that it works a bit differently than a price feed oracle such as Chainlink. 
it allows for basically ask any random question they want. And um, the the way that we actually push that on chain, anyone can uh, actually offer an answer to that question, to that proposal. And then anyone could dispute it if it's wrong. And if there happens to be a dispute, everyone who participates in UMA's ecosystem will be asked to weigh in on the uh, on the dispute to, to adjudicate it, basically. I suppose adjudicate's not a good word for a 10-year-old, but my nephew's smart. And <laughs> everyone will weigh in, and uh, then the outcome would be sort of ruled on in that case. And the people who are weighing in have a have an interest in being right. The, the thing that makes the UMA token valuable. And if, uh, obviously, if people didn't get the right answer, people would lose faith in the security of UMA. And that would be bad for the token holders. Can I please elaborate uh, about product backstory? I'm sorry, elaborate about my backstory? Product backstory. Ah, yeah. So pretty interesting because, so UMA stands for Universal Market Access. And the protocol started out trying to build contracts for difference and other types of um, synthetic assets. And so kind of the, the one way of interpreting universal market access is building synthetic, building synthetic uh, assets of other markets around the world that are available on permissive Ethereum blockchain. And when the founder, the co-founders came together to create the product and they were looking around for Oracle solution, they were dissatisfied with the available options particularly the idea that there was no recourse available. And so while you can have a system of nodes with different incentives that are pushing an API data feed on chain, there was no way to actually sort of guarantee the security of the data feed before it was pushed on chain. And if there was any kind of blip, any kind of error, that could cause hundreds of millions of dollars of liquidations, for example, and there was no way to get it back. You know, once the egg is scrambled kind of thing. Um, and of course, we've seen that to be true. There have been all kinds of Oracle errors, data feed errors that have resulted in millions of dollars um, rearranged to people necessarily um, deserving. <laughs> and uh, so that was that was really why the co-founders went along to create the uh, the priceless synthetic asset and the priceless Oracle and essentially the whole idea with it is that provide economic incentive for people to behave as though the price were on chain without having to push it on chain, which ends up being a very efficient way to run. And if there was ever a dispute, and that dispute could be because of attempted malice, but what's more likely just because of an error, someone can sort of recognize and has a financial incentive to initiate a dispute. And that would allow things to pause for a moment Um to basically evaluate, you know, was this an error? Was the price of this asset actually different than um, than what was submitted? Or, you know, if, if it's a real-world event we're talking about, you can sort of just look into whatever your data source is there, and it provides that, that window for dispute. Um, and I'll just follow up what I think is going to be the common reply here, which is like, well, that delay could be a problem. It's like, yeah, there are certain use cases that I would say an optimistic oracle is slightly less optimal for. And then certain use cases that it's either better for or actually necessary to even do. And uh, how this idea was validated on first steps? Mm -hmm. So in early days, I would say the world had a hard time wrapping their heads around it. Um, I would just say that 
this idea that you had an Oracle running pricelessly was uh, just difficult for people to, to really grasp. And um, case in point, there's this funny, this funny YouTube video that someone put out saying that UMA is the priceless token. And they basically said that UMA, the UMA token doesn't have a price. That's how they interpreted our priceless Oracle. Um, but it's, so essentially, you know, the actual concepts going on, I think were difficult for us, but now that we've gotten like a lot more focused on exactly what that looks like. And now that we're describing ourselves as an optimistic Oracle, which I think people understand because of optimistic rollups, essentially this idea that you trust submissions be true and less disputed is kind of a concept that's becoming more common. And I think that it's, I think it's a design pattern that just fits well with blockchain technology generally. So that's starting to become more well-known. And we're starting to see real use cases, particularly in Web3, that essentially need a design like this. And so um, our our sort of star example is a cross-protocol, which is a cross-chain bridge. And it uses the optimistic oracle to basically ask whether or not the refund was initiated correctly, or sorry, a, a bridge payment was initiated correctly in order to justify a reimbursement. And that that prompt, that question, like, was this correct, yes or no, over and over and over, enables an entire cross-chain bridge to spring up, which is able to function on a single liquidity pool on L1, which is more capital efficient than any of the um, AMM on both sides bridges work. And so it ends up being the the cheapest way to bridge assets. And so that's an example where this optimistic Oracle design and this this um, op- this uh, what we call arbitrary data Oracle that can be asked any particular question where this design ends up winning and ends up being more effective and efficient than than using other sorts of designs that are uh, currently out there. Sounds impressive. Can you tell us more about expertise and background of co-founders in this area? Sure. Yep. So the the founders and actually now a couple of the my colleagues uh, come from Goldman Sachs, a lot of traders from Goldman Sachs. Um, so we have like a strong uh, TradFi showing, which I think is interesting. And um, it's really played into a lot of the design decisions. So Uma, part of Uma's brand, this is a funny thing to say, but like Uma, Uma has not been exploited since inception. And that's in part due to the sort of cautious regard with which co-founders treated um, other people's money and then treated the contract security. And so I, I think this kind of shows, I mean, these are people who had worked for years in markets and seen all the different ways that things can go wrong. It actually inspired the design of the Oracle itself, right? Having this recourse mechanism built into it. And I'm sure you've heard of different things in the news over the years where there was some sort of computer bug and the stock market tanks for some reason and they actually like pause things or wind it a little bit or they stop trading on an asset because there's a problem, et cetera. Now, I'm not going to hear and argue that those are good things, right? Those are centralized Those are centralized entity doing that and the, who might have questionable incentives for doing that. Um, but still, it ends up being necessary because we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars can go the wrong direction. And so essentially what we see is traditional monies that would probably not comfortable coming on chain if there weren't some recourse mechanism. And so the, the co-founders of TradFi background here played into the design kind of in anticipation of what the demands of um, traditional investors might look like. 
And so as we migrate more and more funds being on chain and towards DeFi starting to potentially be considered in retirement, for example, you could imagine certain risk profiles ending uh, recourse. And so I would say it's played into that design as well. So it's both the, the security of the protocol and prioritizing that first and foremost, in addition to um, kind of an emphasis on what we might consider to be some of the the minimum requirements for traditional funds to ever consider coming into crypto as being influences from their their uh, background. Sounds pretty sophisticated for 10 years old. Can you tell uh, us? Yeah, well, <laughs> I didn't realize we were still in the, the ELI 10 uh, part of the question. <laughs> uh, can you tell us what went into building such a product? How long did it take from start to reason main it? Sure. Well, I'm not, excuse me, I'm not, uh, I sort of, it's a kind of funny. I came on to the team, oh, I think just after it when I made that actually. Um, so from my perception, it was really easy and took probably a week, but, um, I'm guessing they did a bunch of work before I got there. Um, I know that the engines, uh, worked for quite a long time, writing the code, having it audited, doing testing. They, they created a test net product, um, which allowed people to launch synthetic stocks. And so um, I know it was like over a year in the making, including the fact that the project started out, as I mentioned earlier, to focus on synthetic assets. But upon realizing that key piece of infrastructure missing, um, circled back to build that too, build it in a way that was that was novel and unique. Um, it was actually inspired by an essay Vitalik had written back in 2014 um, called Shelling Coin. And so they had to kind of build that into it as well. So there was over a year in the work before um, before things went into mainnet and a lot of uh, theory, a lot of economists involved, a lot of academic research. And um, I'm proud to say that Omei's white papers in the top few of of kind of shining stars of works in decentralization and and good sort of underlying learning piece when it comes to someone who wants to kind of go down the rabbit hole into crypto infrastructure. Even one year is a long period in fast-paced crypto space. How has the crypto landscape evolved while building, and does it affect decisions uh, you made and you make on scope or features? Absolutely affects decisions. Um, it's it, it's funny being on a DeFi team because we are always looking at what's going on in the world, evaluating whether we want to become relevant for the current trend or stay on a particular trajectory that we're on. Um, you know, you're building partnerships with other DAOs and other products. And so there's this constant sort of debate or just, you know, reaction, action and reaction when it comes to the wider space as well as prediction. So I would say that Uma's had, you know, mixed, mixed success with regard to prediction, like what will the market like? So Uma was the first project to do initial liquidity offering. We, we put our token onto Uniswap and um, without any centralized exchanges, and that was very successful. And we got all the centralized exchanges like chasing after us, uh, first asking for a fee, we ignore them, and then they list us by surprise, that kind of that kind of awesome serendipity. We had, but we had like really bad predictions. We focused on synthetic assets uh, quite a lot in the beginning with regard to like, oh, potentially... Um, having synthetic assets to real world, uh, sorry, synthetic versions of real world assets available on chain. And with, with some exceptions that just didn't tend to be that popular. Um, people who are investing in crypto wanted sort of crypto native exposures. They didn't want more conservative TradFi exposure. 
Um, and also, Uma, Uma's focus in synthetic assets often revol- resol- revolved around hedging products. And so if you wanted to hedge in permanent loss or you wanted to hedge um, exposure to gas costs or maybe exposure to different stablecoin um, stable pegs, like, yeah, Uma, these products were good for us. But it just turns out that, like, people are in a mad dash to earn tens of thousands APYs or whatever, and hedging a 2% change in the value of a stablecoin just wasn't what people were interested in doing. Um, and so there was learnings there. Um, and I could keep giving examples. I don't want to go on a long ramble, but I would say that it's a it's always an interplay of prediction, action, and reaction. And I would say that we we focus on each of those in turn, but ultimately we have some very core theses about what we think crypto needs and about where we think crypto is going in the future. And um, those sort of stay true all the same. These are just like small, these are small little uh, like applications of those thesis as time goes on. But we're very confident that, um, you know, basically that DeFi and some of the financial products that the space is building are here to stay. And um, we just keep sort of carrying on with that in mind. Can you please elaborate more on this core thesis? Sure. So it kind of circles back around what I mentioned with regard to the needs of an Oracle in the space. Um, So one thesis that I'm currently proposing and testing is that Web3 needs an optimistic Oracle. The reason I think that that's true is because an optimistic Oracle in particular is very good with receiving and validating what's called arbitrary data. And so... I actually, this word arbitrary is kind of funny here. I actually don't feel so comfortable with it, but essentially what it means is you can ask it any, any old thing. Now you can't ask it the meaning of life and expect an intelligible answer. It's not, and it's not psychic. I've had people ask me if you could ask about the price of something in the future. I was like, no, it's not, it's not, that's not what we mean by Oracle. Um, what it means is that you can ask it, you can ask it what would otherwise be an unscalable question if you asked uh, a price feed Oracle. So price feed oracles are really good being asked, what's the price of ETH USD? And then five minutes later asking, what's the price of ETH USD? And you get the idea again and again and again. What's cool about an oracle is you can ask it a different question every five minutes. And as long as that question has some predetermined sort of uh, structure to it, meaning that you can kind of, you're asking a similar question each, but it doesn't even have to, it doesn't have to be that way. It just ends up being very scalable that way as well. And so, the example that I'll use again is a cross, which is a cross-chain L2 to L1 bridge. You can ask that bridge, did so and so bridge the fund, or sorry, lend the funds to the bridging customer over here as as they promised they did, and, you can, and then the oracle can sort of answer yes or no. The, the bridge is valid or invalid. The relay is valid. Or... And you still so say you it's can, not psychic. It's not psychic because you're asking about thing that already happened. You're not asking it will they do it, saying did they do it. It's an important difference. Um, past looking. Um, and so, but what's different about is you're actually asking different ints each time. So you're saying, did so-and-so bridge these funds over here? So the question's different. You can see the question format is similar each time. That allows it to be adjudicated by bots, or not adjudicated, sorry, but just proposed and possibly disputed by bots. But we also have kind of other side of the spectrum. There is an information market, poly market, that uses the optimistic oracle, Luma's optimistic oracle, to secure its own markets. And so it asks questions, what's the uh, rate of COVID in the United States uh, at the end of, you know, March, by March 1st, what was the rate? 
or what was the outcome of the NBA game or different questions around, uh, you know, international incidents and things like that. And so that is a unique and it will never be asked again as it's asked in that moment because it's like based on a particular date. And so that's another example of uh, an arbitrary piece of data can be requested as opposed to asking the same question over and over. I actually forgot what your question was. I hope I answered. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that your product basically wasn't compromised and uh, it kind of raises next question. I'm sure listeners want to know more about how did you handle security in the product? Sure. So, excuse me. This is a, this is a broad question because Uma's Oracle is at its basic layer a piece of infrastructure. And so people could build irresponsible things using it. You could build, yeah, you can, so, so there, there's always this layer where we're aware that um, it's, it's just like, you know, someone could build something on Ethereum, for example, that's, that is secure or not secure. So there is that to consider. So we've always thought a lot about how we want to message this and make sure that people understand that they still have to do diligence on the products that are built on top of UMA. However, we put, you know, we still also do a lot of work to make sure those are built correctly. Um, now, as far as the core UMA contracts go, UMA is frequently audited by OpenZep with a strong relationship with them and um, work closely with their auditors on a frequent basis. We've experimented with um, ongoing audits so that it's not uh, merely at each juncture. And then we... I. So I'm not I'm not an engineer, so I can't give you a um, a detailed answer to your question. And other than just to say, we hire really good engineers who are very intentional and very anxious people. Um, we have an alert system <laughs> uh, set up to everyone's phones that will go off if there was ever anything that's suspect. Um, and we just generally take it quite seriously. I, I thought it would uh, be gone. I'm sorry. Ah, never mind. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> Um, otherwise, let me check. Um, yeah, I think it just has to do with our culture, to be honest. Uh, you know, comes down to really taking this security topic very, very intentionally. And, um, I would also say we move a little bit slowly. Like, we iterate when something feels safe and we, so we experiment with different ways of running programs or designing financial products, but we don't, uh, we don't test things with other people's money. Uh, as the first means of testing, right? Um, and then additionally, we have what's cool about the optimistic oracle is basically it is its own security mechanism insofar as if there was a liquidation of a financial product built on UMA or, or for example, let's say um, for this cross-chain bridge, let's say somebody put in a request for a reimbursement that was uh, fraudulent. Well, the, the optimistic oracle is designed specifically for this case to accept a dispute. And so what's nice about that setup is there's very little incentive to try to break it in that way because you can be fairly confident that you're going to be disputed, you're going to lose your money for having paid the proposal bond, and um, it will adjudicate against you. And so I would say that just generally having an active, active community of token holders and voters and people paying attention to the Oracle is another big security angle with UMA. Um, it's really the entire premise of the security of Uma's uh, Oracle. Developing product in DeFi, you need to be in close contact with a lot of people in the crypto community. 
who were people or products that helped you out and who would you like to highlight? Yeah. Um, well, first, so I'm the community lead, so I absolutely have to highlight uh, our superhuman community uh, for that particular question. We have this incredible group of people who range from people who use their real names to people who use pseudonyms, but I've met in person to cartoon pseudonyms whose gender I'm unsure of in this whole range of people that come to quote unquote work every day, um, helping support Uma's message, helping to, to educate people with it and, uh, uh, helping to secure integrations, actually going out to other protocols, telling them how they might use Uma. And then we're actually getting to the level where our community members are becoming developer, uh, developer experience integration capable, and so they're actually able to help other DAOs and other protocols on board the UMAS Oracle or using UMAS products. So that community is super powerful. Um, there are a number of names off the top of my lips that I wouldn't want to mention for the fact that I would probably miss somebody, but let me see if I can... I can't seem to find our space on my phone. Hold on. I want to mention the people that are here in the, in the call, at least. So in a little while, I see Sonny here, but he's Ricochet. Uh, let's see, so we got in this call... So the super humans definitely stand out to me. Um, but then we have a bunch of DAOs. So Yam Finance has been with us for quite a long time building cool products. Um, so they built UGAS and they built uh, UPunks and USTONKS and a lot of these different kind of synthetic asset process products that we've used. And they're working on a different suite of products at the moment. We have a load of just DAO integrations. So um, Harvest Finance, our community, and uh, harvests overlap quite a lot, as well as Badger DAO, um, and then Volatility DAO and Boba. We've been working with a lot lately. Um, Domination Finance is built on Uma's Oracle, and is also working alongside Boba. Um, and yeah, I'd almost want to open the website because I feel bad because I know I'm skipping the majority of team, but um, we've really had a tremendous amount of uh, integrations and interaction from people in the space. I definitely really enjoy my work for that reason, because it feels like such a collaborative effort. There's a lot of um, just genuine co-appreciation for building cool shit in the space. Um, you know, it's nerds that like to, to hang out and talk about this very niche subject in the world, right? These these financial products and tokenizing assets and things like that. So um, it's a blast. I'll leave it with that. You are quite a storyteller, and it's kind of hard to think about something uncool about Uma. Let's pretend, though, we are in this so-called red team and consider some worst possible scenarios. What difficulties in onboarding and getting access for the new users do you see in future? What difficulties do I see for onboarding and accessing access for new users in the future? Okay. Well, I can tell you the difficulties we have right now. Um, <laughs> We, uh, being that I'm not psychic, no, um, our Oracle design is a bit unintuitive. Um, and I would actually say that it represents, it, it, it represents a design pattern that is very well suited to blockchain, but ends up being unintuitive because the world is used to APIs. They're used to pushing data feeds to things, and that's how Web2 works. But data feed pushing API kind of design actually doesn't lend itself to blockchain infrastructure quite as well. And so we've had a hard time uh, literally sometimes getting people to wrap their head around our product. Um, it's getting better. 
But what's cool is most of the time we're talking about developers. So um, we're talking about people who will take some time to sit down and consider how this stuff works. So that's that's one version of UMA's is just developers. It's people who sit down at a hackathon and maybe they want to build a prediction market. And so they think about, well, what am I going to use as an Oracle solution? We need those people to know how UMA works. We need those people to understand that they need an Oracle that's very good with bespoke questions and with arbitrary data. And so um, once we kind of get there, I think we're looking pretty good. But I will say that you're like your average quote unquote retail user, if we can be said to have those in crypto yet, those people don't necessarily wrap their heads around how it works. And why would they? It's like, it's not because they couldn't, it's because it doesn't, they, they, they don't really need to, to use the underlying products, which is cool. The, um, and I guess if I were to answer that question slightly more broadly, just in the context of crypto, right? There's just, well, you didn't ask me that question, but I guess there's the familiar answers, right? It's the, uh, the gateways or, uh, maybe the difficulty with, with uh, self-custody, things like that, when it comes to crypto more generally. But um, I don't know. May, does that answer your question? Of course, perfectly. Cool. Do you do some, uh, you know, as every crypto in the face startup, some educational projects? Yes. Um, so our Super Umin DAO, the community that I told you about, they have an entire education team as well as an onboarding. And so... The education team focuses a lot on teaching people how UMA works, but it also, I would say, teaches people about crypto, a lot of crypto projects in general. Um, so, for instance, like how, how you can get into a wallet and how you can self-custody and things like that. Then we also have a robust suite of docs, which is developer-focused, so that's actually hosted on umaproject.org, our website. And so any developer that's interested in, in building something using UMA can go there. And then we also have, there's actually a course online that you can participate in that's dedicated to building contracts on UMA that was built by a community member. And then um, also just a, a load of Discord support. So if you go into um, discord.umaproject.org, you, you can ask our dev support team or you can ask the developers from our team that are in there and uh, get support there as well. Do you collaborate would, with some other projects uh, on this initiative? I ask this so, because, uh, as I can mm -hmm. see, uh, a lot of projects on the market kind of fight this battle alone, and uh, I wonder why. This sounds like a loaded question that's going to be relevant to what you guys are up to, am I right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, okay, so... Um, Like, look, we, we do a lot of co-contention with different teams to help them understand how to use our our uh, users' products. We're also aware of a lot of different Web3 onboarding kind of uh, tools that are out there. I think I'm more so speaking about um, I'm more so speaking about developers rather than users in that example. Um, but yeah, it's difficult to be perfectly honest with you. It's a bit difficult for a number of reasons including just because what we are and how what our emphasis is changes on a on an ongoing basis as we grow. And so generating educational materials is tough because it goes stale. Uh it goes, you know, it gets becomes it becomes uh outdated so quickly. Um so yeah, I would say that maybe we go it alone just because of that a little more than might be optimal. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Can you please tell us what's your business model? What are different ways you're making money? 
Sure. Well, the first way we're making money is we hired as our treasurer, the former treasury desk manager at Goldman Sachs. And he took what was a modest investment from investors in UMA, I think in 2018. And I think 10X it um, through conservative efforts. We're not talking about a degen. We're talking about somebody who just used yield farming and, and other fairly conservative and balanced portfolio methods to grow our actual foundation running treasury quite dramatically. So we have uh, a dramatic amount of runway UMA does as an organization with the risk labs backing, which is uh, a very cool thing to be able to boast. Um, but how does the protocol make money? Interesting question. So remember I told you about how if there was ever a dispute, the UMA token holders have to step in and rule on that dispute. And if they get it wrong, they would lose the value of their tokens. So what's hidden in there is this this kind of ratio or this formula, which is that you always need the value of the UMA token to be more than the value of the markets that it's securing. Because otherwise, the person who has something to gain by bad data could actually bribe all the UMA token holders to behave in a different way. And so the the kind of like way that value will get driven into the token in the long run is through adoption. And essentially what we expect to see happen is the users of the protocol will eventually need to hold positions in the protocol in order to to access it, in order to, to have their contracts secured by the Oracle. And also that would help result in, in the market cap, which would allow that, um, that essential economic security ratio to stay in the right side, which is to say that it becomes, it's more, more expensive to bribe somebody than the money you could possibly make by doing so. So, um, that's the underlying, uh, kind of economic value capture associated with uh, the tokenomics. It's interesting. Let's talk about the market more broadly. Is there anyone who you consider your direct competitors and how do you differentiate? Sure. So Oracle, you know, there's a lot of different Oracle solutions out there. It would be easy to think of Chainlink as being our direct competitor, but I don't think that would be quite accurate. Um, I would say that UMA is less optimal for quote unquote fast DeFi, which is what we call it, which is DeFi that can be serviced by this um repeated scaled um, price feed Oracle kind of design, but there's some overlap. There's some overlap in the, in the projects we can service. And so there's a way in which you could think of it that way. The other, the, the, the closer competitors I would say would be something like Claros, which is kind of a token weighted court system. And then there's reality.eth, which is sort of similar. And then there have been some in the past, like Truthcoin, which I don't think is, I, I don't really know the status of it, but I don't think it's still around. Um, excuse me. And so those would be more appropriately in that basket. But what I would say is that there aren't so many examples where the actual end products uh, have competed with each other yet. And I think that's by virtue of the fact that it's still early and, and by the fact that this particular Oracle design and the products that we can design with it are so vast that we just haven't really had a collision. Um, and also, just to be boastful for a minute, there isn't an optimistical Oracle design that has anywhere near the amount of traction that UMAS does out there right now, nor the market cap size and therefore the, the economic security that it can offer. Um, so right now I would say that um, there's not really a clear competitor, but there's definitely mindshare competitors when it comes to like understanding Oracles, for example. 
with this exciting accomplishments, what are UMA's goals for the future and how do you plan to accomplish them? Sure. So, excuse me. I mean, at the end of the day, UMA's name, Universal Market Access, is really behind this idea of creating more equity in finance. And so that ends up being an un, unofficial goal of DeFi more more broadly, right? We tend to talk about the unbanked. We talk about permissionless access to financial tools. And so I think that that's what the best of us in the space are working towards. And UMA is working towards it as well, except we just have a particular thesis about how we think it ought to be done. And so that includes um, basically this idea that you have an oracle that is flexible and has some recourse built into it and, and isn't quite so brittle where a small blip in the data feed might break something. And so what we see in the future there is basically allowing for protocols to have recourse built into them so that in the event that something goes wrong, you can have a decentralized resolution. Now, there's an important difference there. Why I italicize that word is like, yeah, we've had people step in and do recourse in TradFi, right? But as I mentioned earlier, that's centralized intervention. But what's really powerful about a design like UMA is that we're basically talking about DAO, a DAO kind of design, right? So it's a Web3 native actual security design, not just the actual end user for the product, but the entire security design is Web3 native, which is to say owned by the people who use it. And that's where we'd like to see the future going when it comes to security and DeFi and when it comes to specifically securing oracles uh, across the space is making sure that kind of the security is owned by the people who are using it in the same way that uh, that's consistent with the Web3 vision, right, of people owning these these currently monolithic companies uh, in Web2. Amen. Continuing being a red team, can you see any big roadblocks that lie ahead and uh, not related to tech education? Yeah, um, a, a ton of roadblocks. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is like UMA is, is fairly flexible insofar as we're always attempting different angles. But um, sorry, I meant to answer the not turn this into a positive. So the roadblocks I can see um, would probably include a little bit of the integration side of things, um, depending on the complexity of the request that you want to make to the Oracle. It can be a little bit cumbersome to, like, actually parameterize those requests, but we're getting a lot better at it. Um, it's just there's particular use cases that are really well suited to the optimistic Oracle. And so an example would be, did the SpaceX, SpaceX rocket launch go successfully? Like, that's, a, that's an insurance market that was secured by the optimistic Oracle. So that went really well. But if you start to ask it questions like, did so-and-so do a good job on this project? That gets more complicated. And there's totally like, there's ways you can build escalation games or you can parameterize and define what you mean by that question. But it's still, it's still like a roadblock towards actual like tomorrow adoption. Um, I would say another issue that we're, that I see in the near future is like, I'm personally very passionate about outcomes that have kind of real world ties. And so, for example, I would love to see a government create a derivative product on UMA that pays out to its citizens based on the carbon emissions rate uh, at a certain year in the future. And so you could literally give tokens to citizens that will be worth more money if they collectively reduce the carbon emission in that city. 
And what's really cool about that is people could do that from the outside. Like you could permissionly, permissionlessly give these token derivatives to people and create an incentive for their action. And whether that action was completed, that's the thing that would be checked by the Oracle. But the roadblock is essentially, and we've tried to do stuff like this. We've tried with universities and we've tried with municipalities. And essentially it's just the crypto barrier. You know, it's like they're, they, they're just bureaucratic or maybe there's not. In the university case, they were uncomfortable sharing the data that I think would have been relevant for this derivative product. But in most cases, it just ends up being one of those general kind of crypto barriers. Um, aside from that, and I would say is kind of characteristic of a crypto-wide sort of barrier, um, I think the future is very bright for UMA. Uh, I do realize that I'm paid to say that, but uh, uh, I really do. Like, There's just so many interesting things cooking right now. And that's by virtue of the fact that the stuff that UMA allows developers to build, particularly in Web3, is uh, not not always just more efficient, but also in many cases novel, couldn't be built in a different way. Um, so I can see roadblocks, but I can kind of also see how we might navigate around them. Take that red team. <laughs> Basically, my previous question was a kind of hidden question about the actions of regulators. Uh, that can okay. somehow yep. make things worse. Uh, so what's your position on the regulatory landscape? Sure. So UMA, you know, I mentioned how we are uh, anxiously unwilling to lose other people's money. Well, we're also anxiously unwilling to uh, keep regulators up at night or to otherwise be a blipping red light on their radar as best we can. And so... Um, uh, I can just say that there's been a considerable amount of effort and attention and care placed in the organizational structure that's behind the UMA protocol. And so, like, presently, the UMA tokens are fully decentralized as a DAO. And what I mean by that is, like, there is no individual that could be brought down that would affect the on-chain capabilities of UMA. So that's a powerful, it's just like a powerful position to be in with regard to regulators. Um now, that doesn't mean that, you know, if a regulator contacted me personally or something, right, like that would be annoying, but they, they couldn't stop the, the actual protocol operating. They could just interrupt our Twitter spaces, um, which would be unfortunate. Uh, otherwise, like, UMA protocol is, it's an Oracle design that anyone could plug into and start asking it questions. Now, UMA token holders are... A network of individual token holding individuals and agents and robots around the world who have a vested interest in the success and adoption of the protocol. You could imagine, let's say there was some request that was essentially bad for society or would otherwise be dramatically problematic in some, some particular way. Um, you could imagine them sort of banding together and deciding that um, this actually isn't the kind of request they're willing to entertain. And that could involve that could involve something that's of great regulatory urgency or, or regulatory concern. However, it's it's also hard to imagine what that would look like just because it is a decentralized network. And so, um, aside from aside from concerns that affect the, the space as a whole, which I could pontificate on as much as anyone could, um, I do think that UMA is in a good position with regard to regulators, including just because. Uh, you know, we're talking about people who came from TradFi. They're not people who are, were just like, you know, 
trying to maintain anonymity and uh, do things fast and loose. There are people who consulted with lawyers for many, many hours, many billable hours to structure the, the foundation that supports the protocol and the tokenomics and the token design. Else. So um, a lot of intentionality on into that piece of things. Thank you. Thank you for all these insights. But we would like to get to know you better. We believe people invest in people, and the, that's why we ask our guests to spend some time on personal questions. We want to understand your values and how they influence your decisions. And my first question is, uh, the crypto landscape is very mosaic. Lots of people with opposing opinions. What do you consider the worst advice you see or hear in DeFi? Worst advice that I see here here at DeFi. Um, well, I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is just general euphoric investing. <laughs> um, and this comes from my own personal experience, which is, uh, you know, I joined, I joined in December of two, uh, yeah. I mean, except the problem is people don't think it's gambling, right? They think it's fundamentals. And that's what I see as problematic. And, and, and I don't think the people advocating it think it's wrong either. I mean, it's euphoric. You know, they're, euph they're euphoric. They think that whatever adoption narrative the market is currently validating with prices is the one that we will see play out in the near, mid, and, and late future. And um, the reason I can spot it is because I fell victim to it in 2017. And uh, not dramatically. I never leveraged a mortgage a house or anything. But I let myself get into it. And... What I don't like about that in even well, – so, of course, I don't like individuals losing their money, but they're adults. They can do as they like. But what I would really like for people to do is, is actually discover that we're building cool stuff here. And what I would like for them to do instead of euphoric investing or gambling is to join a DAO and to start doing some work and to earn some tokens. And if they want to play with found money uh, that they earned in a DAO, then go for it. But um, So I'm not sure I would even call that advice from people, but it's definitely – a sentiment you hear out there, which is like, if you're not buying NFTs, what are you even doing? Um, I'm sorry, that is not meant to be a rip against NFTs as a whole category, right? But I'm just saying, like, you know, buying a buying a particular art piece because it's been trending for the last 48 hours uh, for a new person could be a bad first experience in crypto. And I wouldn't like, I don't like for that to happen. I want people to have positive experiences. I want more talent and more builders and generally more um, diverse perspectives helping to build this uh, this future that we're working on. I heard subtle rumors that there is life uh, beyond decentralized finance. Do you have any obsessions you explore on your free time if you have any, some hobby? Sure. So um, I'm a big traveler. I uh, sort of sit right in between digital nomad and expat. I lived in Kyrgyzstan most recently and before that the Philippines and uh, I'll be heading to Barcelona and then Turkey here soon. And really in those places, what I really love to do is, um, uh, is meet people who are living in poverty or, or who are living on very little because I'm extremely fascinated by this part of human life, which is that we really put a lot of emphasis on the value of money. Um, I'm currently in a, in a house in central and the middle of the USA that's you know, full of all these very nice and uh, yet I'll go in the very next week, I'll end up somewhere where people are living in very, very bad conditions under a piece of discarded advertising uh, as their shelter. 
And it just really fascinated me. I know this is a weird hobby, but it just really fascinates this whole thing. And I'm not even trying, I'm not judgmental about it. It's just a really fascinating thing that we live in this place where money can be valued so differently by different people across space and time. And uh, it's, it's a, it's an ongoing fascination. You can also see how it ties well into what we're doing in DeFi generally, right? When it comes to permissionless finance and access to value uh, transfer systems. Sounds like Buddha Gautama. <laughs> I try not to elevate myself too much, but... Uh, <laughs> Is there some place in the world you visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? Yeah, I would say that my uh, my year-long stay in Hawaii, on the big island of Hawaii, really set me on the trajectory I'm on today. Um, I did a farm stay and then... Or sorry, I did like a farm work work exchange at a farm and then um i was meant to stay there for three months and come back to my job as a middle manager in chicago and six weeks in i called and told them to fill my position because i wasn't leaving and i stayed for a whole year and by the end of that year i was uh, i decided to leave the farm and sleep on the beach so i was like a willfully homeless person and uh i just had this incredible moment where i ended up walking across several miles of cooled lava towards the live volcano in the big island of Hawaii under full under a full moon it's after well, one in the morning and just had this really incredible experience of feeling like a creature on the side of a planet floating through space much more than I had ever had that feeling before and it just gave me a real perspective on what's important in my life and uh set me on the trajectory I'm on today which is um you know one of being a nomad and I would also say is what that lifestyle is what gave me the flexibility to come into crypto the way that I did I don't think I would be in crypto if I hadn't done that. Um, and so, yeah, that had a tremendous uh, impact on my life. Sounds extremely romantic. <laughs> it was, yeah. it was, although I was alone. <laughs> what topic would you speak about if you were asked to give a TED talk on something outside of your main area of expertise? Sure, sure. Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, so it, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but like in my past, In my past life, I was in e-commerce as a digital nomad, so I would probably talk about like how to be a good eBay seller. Oh, actually, you know what I would do? I would talk about vintage. I I have uh, a lot of experience uh, sourcing and selling and flipping vintage jewelry, so I could talk for 20 minutes and longer about um, how to build a network of relationships and where you can buy find gold and silver jewelry for like close to scrap price. And, how to negotiate and how to take good pictures and kind of that whole, and then just like types of turquoise and what native American jewelry is worth it and what's beautiful and uh, why these marketplaces exist and everything else. So I could really talk your ear off about jewelry, just sort of random. Sounds like you're a pretty open-minded person. Changing <laughs> opinions on some issues is the sign of an open mind. What have you changed your mind about in the last few years and why? So I I guess I would say well so this is crypto related but I I've always been incredulous always been unsure about the purpose of crypto and I've always been uh I guess I've always thought that this really was just a a fun little gambling game we're all doing together and I mentioned to you earlier about how MakerDAO kind of refreshed my my uh perspective on crypto I'm still incredulous, um, but there's something I'm seeing here when it comes to markets buying stuff because it's cool and funny and a meme. 
And I just, I, I hate it. I really hate it. Um, it, it makes me, <laughs> makes me upset because I wish I bought the thing. And because I never would have thought to buy the things, it's stupid and it's just a meme. And yet I'm starting to see that there's something. I don't know what it is, but there's something there about value and about how humans communicate and maybe even something about the future. You know, I think that we're stumbling onto something. Um, I don't know what it is yet. So I wouldn't even say my mind is currently changed, but I am currently open. I'm open-minded for an explanation that helps me understand why markets buy memes um, and why communities can form under a meme that then go on to have a viable product as opposed to products that start out as a good product but don't have any of the meme power and then flop. Uh, it's just really backwards and strange to me. I'm, I'm open-minded, though. I'm waiting for a good explanation. Nice answer. Everyone who builds in DeFi lives at a crazy pace and is challenging to stay in shape at that pace. The daily routine is very important to stay productive in the long run, especially if you live nomadic life. Do you have any morning rituals? What do the first hour of your day look like? Sure, sure. Well, I definitely try to read a bit. Well, I get up and I make black coffee immediately. Um, and I try to read a bit. When I'm here in America, I check my Facebook messages and chat with my girlfriend because she's in the Philippines and we are time necessitates that and that's yeah that's part of my daily ritual to be honest you know connecting to somebody that i love and um you know making that the first part of my day is really nice and um otherwise meditation me a really key thing here and so um whether it's evening or morning i'm pretty good at keeping a daily meditation practice going it is uh really i just think quite essential and well-suited for a life in, in DeFi and in crypto and volatile assets in general to um, to really sit with all of these different sensations and desires and urges that we have as human animals uh, made of flesh because DeFi and just general computer, uh, you know, dopamine addiction programming, et cetera, can be very powerful and I think can lead us into a certain amount of unhappiness if we're not disciplined. And so, um, That's my that's my uh, counter salve for that that part of this lifestyle, I think. In that regard, what would constitute a perfect day for you? Well, a perfect day for me is finding a babbling stream under a tree where the sunlight's coming through the leaves and dappling the ground, and I set my hammock up next to it, and then maybe I like do some cool intellectual reading, but then I also wander around in the woods and I'm there with my girlfriend or maybe not and doing something solo, but basically being out in nature with my hammock and a little camp stove that I can make some hot coffee. That's pretty much my most epic day. Kind of where I've envisioned my uh, looking like to where I can have almost every day be like that. Uh, yeah, that's me. Sounds great. <laughs> What's the best or most worthwhile investment you made? And it's not necessarily investment of money. It could be time, sure, energy, sure. or any other. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that, um, gosh, losing losing some money in crypto was probably the best investment I've made, which is to say that, like, um, you know, I uh, got involved in a bit of a FOMO way in 2017 
but what was really cool is that that's what got me hooked. You know, it wasn't, um, wasn't about whether I got return on that investment. It was actually just the fact that I started reading white papers and I started understanding some of the technology underneath this stuff, as well as the people and the relationships. And so, um, that I suppose, so that was the money piece of it. Then the other piece would be the, the relationships. And so during the bear market in particular, uh, I met a lot of people like Kane of Synthetics or Stani of Ave, um, and or, you know, Rahul of Connext, uh, CTO of Connext, and so on and so on. I just have a long list of uh, Fran of Superfluid, a long list of like founders of projects who were just friends hanging out during that time because it was quiet. And so I would say the relationships during the bear market was a hugely powerful uh, investment, um, a non-monetary investment that's paid off because now I have these people I can chat with and reach out to and get advice from or, uh, you know, think about. Uh, DeFi integrations with um, that, uh, you know, the, it would be hard to start those relations in the, during a bull run when everything's so loud and hectic. Losing money as best investment sounds quite counterintuitive. <laughs> Talking about typical investments, let's turn to little everyday life things. What purchase under 100 bucks has brought you the most benefit and joy? Some useful tool or gadget or something. Sure. Well, I have a, a non-traditional answer for this, and that's uh, when I was in Hawaii, I did a 10-day meditation retreat, and I think I might have only gave them 100 bucks at the end. Uh, it was a donate-what-you-can kind of retreat, and uh, it was a Vipassana program, and uh, yeah, I would say that was part of setting my life on a new trajectory was that meditation retreat. So um, that has been a very uh, impactful thing for me. Um to give you an answer that might be more in line would be my next stand uh, laptop stand, which I just really, <laughs> from an ergonomic perspective, really changes my life because it lifts my laptop up. Uh, or the Roost is the original product of the same type. Uh, so that's like a $30 purchase on Amazon. Since you're a nomad, do you have any kind of everyday carry set? I'm sorry, everyday what? Everyday carry set, like uh, something that uh, that's with you everywhere. Sure, sure. Um, one of the things that I'm always that I always have with me, actually, I have a lot of things. Like, I always basically have a hammock with me. I always have a camp stove so that I can make myself coffee, and then I can double it as a lantern. But one thing that I carry with me everywhere is a lacrosse ball, which I use for basically muscle release. So, if I am uh, Working at the computer too long and my back's hurting, I can lean up against the wall and drop the lacrosse ball back there and just like rock back and forth. And, and it's really powerful for targeting and releasing certain muscles. So um, I always manage to have one of those with me wherever I am in the world. So basically you're working on the edge of high tech, but uh, you are ready for any post-apocalyptic event. Yeah. I like to think, I like to think of that. Uh, I like to think that. And most recently was living in a yurt in Kyrgyzstan, uh, six hours away from the city. So, um, it was pretty much like that. Um, I was ready for a zombie attack if, if that needed to happen. By the way, was it hard to keep silence, uh, at Vipassana for 10 days in a row? It was hard. Uh, yeah, it's very hard keeping silence and, uh, keeping, you know, um, I don't know, 10 days is a long time. Like you don't fully appreciate it until you can't talk or read or watch TV and you're just meant to sit and meditate. It's a really long time. 
Um, it was a challenge, definitely. So it's like going to the mountains. You do not appreciate it until you come back. <laughs> There's a little bit of that for sure. I mean, there were definitely pleasant moments, but um, what was cool though is I remember like we eat lunch and breakfast, breakfast and lunch, but you don't have dinner. Um, so you do start to become very excited about the small things, you know, the meal finally in the morning or the hot shower in the morning. Um, you do kind of calibrate for what you're getting on a daily basis. That's that gives you that little pump of dopamine. Proceeding with small everyday things that have an impact. Do you have the book or books uh, you have given most as a gift or recommend? Sure. Um, mine's actually a, a nonfiction history book, which is called Endurance by Alfred Lansing. And uh, it's just about the story of um, of the Endurance ship, which was a, an Arctic expedition to find the South Pole and just kind of went wrong. Their ship got frozen in ice and it was just an incredible heart pounding journey and an amazing leader uh, who just kept morale high for over a year. Uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but um, tremendous, tremendous read both exciting it's the book i give most and recommend most um and i find it full of good life lessons as well as just uh one of those books that you stay up a lot later than you intended reading talking about books do you have any quote you live your life by or think about often yeah I'm not sure it's a specific quote but i'm generally proceeding under the belief that um Most of the desires that we have, this is like a Buddhist psychology thing, but most of the desires that we have are sort of come out of our ego and um, that we usually almost have everything we need to be happy and to be okay already. And so uh, I, I sort of try to sit with that idea frequently. Um, I am not, I have not mastered it. If you, if you look at me from the outside, I, I like things and I like fleeting pleasures and everything else, but um, it's really something I carry with me belief and I hope to be circling it tighter and tighter as I get older. Let's dream a little. If you have a crystal ball and a crystal ball could tell you the truth about the future or present or anything else, what would you want to know? Gosh, uh, I suppose I'd want to know if there was an afterlife. I don't think that there is, but I'd like to ask that. Um, and what would you do I in afterlife? I would wonder if there's an after afterlife. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that's an interesting question, and I don't think too often about it. I suppose, you know, actually, I guess I would probably ask it some really logical questions, such as, like, um, you know, should we be placing the the environmental crisis, like, literally at the highest of priorities? You know, is that going to be... Is that the only thing we should be focusing on because it's the, the the sinking ship we're all on, or should we should we focus on you know human suffering? I suppose I'd really like to know how to prioritize what appear to be a number of uh, important like concerns worldwide. I'd like to know which one is the the most important. Less than assume time travel is possible. What advice would you give your five ten years younger self? Oh boy. Well, let's see, 10 years ago, I think I was pretty close to quitting drinking around that time anyway. I think I'm at eight years sober now. So maybe I'd try to give myself two years. Congratulations. Quitting drinking, thank you. <laughs> um, but, you know, 
not a huge difference now at this point, uh, time-wise. Um, I suppose, like, gosh, the biggest change for me in my life has been working in crypto in, the, in this last period of time. And so part of me regrets um, maybe not getting involved earlier. And no, I don't mean go buy Bitcoin at $1,000. I just mean, um, yeah, during that time I was living uh, kind of as a digital nomad, five years ago anyway, um, thinking I was winning because I was working a four-hour work week and I was uh, – um, you know, living somewhat like a retired person might. And that was cool. But I, I literally have this memory of sitting in a hammock next to the pond uh, and wishing I was part of a team of people uh, working hard on something cool. And it was just kind of funny, this backwards thing where I'm like living like a retired person just about, but um, wishing I was working. But And now I am. And it is freaking cool. And, and I'm very pleased and happy with the trajectory I'm on. But... uh I also could have started earlier. I could have an even stronger skill set. I'm 37 and I'm working with 25 year olds who are arguably my senior or equal or whatever in terms of like knowledge and skill. And, um, I'm immensely grateful to be where I am doing it, but I also would have been cool maybe to, to have started even earlier and to have even more experience. But, um, uh, yeah, so that would probably be the advice is to start, uh, Start going down that path. Start working on stuff. Stop being so um, – I suffer from imposter syndrome quite a lot. Um, the idea that I would be on a Twitter space and interviewed about something would have made me sweat and wouldn't have thought I'd been capable of doing it. And so I suppose that would just be like, hey, start working on something you find interesting and don't just give up because you feel scared. That would be the advice. For what in your life do you feel the most grateful I feel very grateful to live in a time where things like Airbnb and Uber and general um, and smartphones all exist so I can travel and get very deep into random cultural experience very easily. Um, but at a time before globalization has gotten so far that all these traditional places and cultures are like homogenized, um, I just feel like we're at a very lucky intersection of technology and progress but also um, traditional societies. And um, even though friends I might make in a city in a particular country might be a lot more similar to me, their parents are still very traditional. And so it's been a really cool uh, moment in time. I'm very grateful to be alive at this moment in time. And that was my last question. Do you have any ask or request or, or advice for our audience? Last part in war. <laughs> um Yeah, I suppose my ask uh, is to try to get people in your world interested in working in DeFi. I just think that there's really a lot of cool opportunities here right now. And uh, I don't really know how to bridge this gap between opportunities and talent because there's a big one. Um, but I would love for people to just talk more about it. Um, I have a, a personal friend of mine that took on a temporary role at UMA recently. And uh, and now she's applying for the full-time role. And it was just really cool because it's not something she would have, would have occurred to her. I just think that people aren't really aware of what working in Web3 is like. And there's a lot of people who would be much happier having the freedom and team friendliness and cohesion and, uh, and profitability that I see available in Web3. Um, there's just, yeah, I think it just it doesn't have the best 
branding as a, as an industry, or I don't, I don't know how to diagnose this, but I would love for people to get out there and um, to promote it directly and talk to those people you think um, are talented and maybe want to change, uh, get them over working alongside us and building the future. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show, Clayton. It was very inspiring and, uh, and warm speaking. I wish you good luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you, Roman. Appreciate the opportunity to come on. It was great. And thanks to all our listeners as well. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. We are glad to have you here and wish you all the best in your life and career. To stay up to date on our latest episodes, please follow us on Twitter and Discord. If you are new to the show, we release a new episode every few days. Our next guest is expected to be Munir from Paraswap. For those of you who are regular listeners, please share the show with those around you. We will be back soon with more insights from expert guests from across the world. Have a great day. See you next time. Bye.